I read an article this past week about a man. He went to India. And he was on a tour group. And as he was on the tour group, he got kind of left behind. He, he, he wandered off and didn't stay with the tour group. He found himself on the edge of the jungle. And if you know anything about India, one of the truths about India is there's a higher population of tigers in India than anywhere else in the world, these Bengal tigers. And the man found himself face-to-face with a Bengal tiger, and he, instead of facing the giant beast, he ran. And so as he was running away from the tiger, the tiger began to pursue him. And he got to this edge of the jungle, and he found that he was now at the edge of a cliff with this tiger behind him, and he was scared to death, probably white as a ghost. And as he stood there, he turned around and saw the tiger had basically drawn itself ready to pounce and he had no choice. And so he looked down at the cliff and he saw a branch hanging from there and he decided that's my only chance. So he jumped down off the cliff and he caught the branch and he's holding on the branch while the tiger is up on top, swiping at him and he's holding onto this branch for dear life. And as he's holding onto this branch, a chipmunk comes down onto the branch and starts gnawing on the branch as if life couldn't get any worse. And this man who has left his tour group, he's all alone. No one knows that he's there. He finally, in his life, cries out to God like he never has before. God, if you're there, will you save me? And out of the blue, he hears this voice coming from the sky, and he says, do you trust me? And then says, yeah, I trust you. I'll, I'll do whatever you ask. You tell me what I have to do. If you will just save me, I'll do whatever you ask. And God says, you'll do whatever I ask? And he says, yes. And the man holding on there watching that chipmunk gnaw at the branch. Then the voice from the sky says, let go. The man looks down and sees it's got to be a thousand feet down to the bottom. He says, what? And And the voice from the sky says, let go. If you trust me, just let go. So the man contemplates this a little bit. And he finally calls back, is there anyone else up there? You know, it's, it's one thing to, to say that we trust, but to act on the trust is something that's totally different. And what we're going to find in this passage in Malachi is God's going to invite the people, he's going to invite us into a deeper understanding of what it means to trust. And it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. I'm excited to share it with you. And as we get into it, I want to give a little bit more background because the, the Israelites in this time of Malachi, they would have known the history. They would have known the story. And a lot of us, we know some of the story, but it's important to know the history. It's important to know the story because that is part of what builds our trust. If you give some thought to who it is that you trust, why you trust them, you can oftentimes identify it's not just some stranger that you've just met off the street that you suddenly trust, but it's someone who has earned that trust. There's something about that person. That person demonstrates a consistency that you trust. Oftentimes, children will trust their parents. You know, and there's times where parents will do something, they, whether intentional or unintentional, that the child may view as like, wow, I thought I trusted you. And those things in our lives can kind of shatter that trust. But that's because we're, we're human in that sense. But you look at this idea of consistency, you look at this idea of care, and all of these aspects build into our ability to trust. Well, the story of the Israelites, 
and we've talked about some of this before. If you're new with us, this might be new information for you, but in either case, the, the story of the Israelites starts in a way with Abraham, a man who God saw and called because he wanted to turn him into a great nation. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac then has a son named Jacob. Actually, he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one that ends up wrestling with God, and God changes his name to Israel. He's the father, in a sense, of the nation Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and then this is where the story starts to fold, or unfold for us so that we have a better picture as to what God's going to do. But up until this point, keep in mind, everything that had happened, God said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and people saw it happening. We'll get to the point where Jacob has a son, and it's Joseph. And Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, and so he goes off into Egypt. He's there for quite some time. They go and they tell their father, Jacob, uh, Joseph's dead, by the way. We he saw, you know, got eaten by an animal, probably a tiger. He was on the side of a cliff, and there was a chipmunk. He had a choice, choice to make. And so they, Jacob thinks his son is dead. Well, Joseph is alive, and he's over in Egypt, and he raises to a place of prominence, does some miraculous things, not on his own, but through God uh, and the spirit of him interpreting some dreams. So he raises to this, to this place of prominence in Egypt while there gets to be this great famine. And in this famine, all of Jacob's sons then come to Egypt to get some food to bring back to, because they're living in this, this promised land, but they're gonna, some things are going to shift. And they come to get some food, and Joseph reveals himself. It's a long story, but in a, what ends up happening is Jacob and his family all come to Egypt to stay in Egypt where there's lots of food, and they're cared for. They're, there's a foundation now that has been built for them, and they will stay in Egypt for 400 years. And they're protected in the realm of Egypt, this family, for 400 years. Now, they've got the promised land, but they're not there. They're in Egypt. But what ends up happening while they're in Egypt is their numbers grow to a point where the pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, feels threatened. It's like, what are we going to do with all of these Israelites? Because they're kind of outnumbering us. If they were to revolt, how are we going to handle that? And so he lays on some oppression on them and turns them into slave laborers. And so they do this work, and they're building the buildings. They're what all they're doing is it's, it's night and day. That's where they're working. There's oppression for the children, so he cuts off. There's no male children that are allowed to survive. If you have a male child, the child is killed. And all of this stuff, and there's this weight that starts getting pressed on the Israelites. And then a man named Moses comes onto the scene, and God sends him to go and save and rescue his people out of Egypt. And there's a long story with that. We won't get into all that. But in this mess now, Moses comes onto the scene. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, I want, you. God says this, he has this message for you. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, what are you nuts? That's my labor force. He says, no way. Am I going to let your people go? And then there gets to be these signs and these wonders and these 10 plagues that end up taking place between an abundance of frogs coming onto the scene, death coming onto the scene, livestock and flies and darkness and all of these signs and wonders. God said, if you don't let my people go, I will do this. The Israelites would have heard that. The Egyptians heard that. And you know what happened? Every time God said, this is what's going to happen, it happened. And you see the consistency starting to develop in all that see what God is doing. So there's this consistency that develops. 
And we get to this point then after the 10th plague, and this is the one where God says you need to take a lamb and you need to sacrifice it, an incredibly beautiful picture of the coming Messiah and what what's gonna, God's going to do in the midst of that. But he'd take this lamb and sacrifice it and put the blood over your doorpost, and that when I see that blood, I will pass over and death will not enter your house. Well, those who did it saw again God did exactly what he said he would do. And Pharaoh, after this 10th plague, says to Moses, fine, get out of here. I'm done with you. So Moses rallies the people, and they leave. And at this point, Pharaoh has, what have I just done? Yes, I was scared of the plagues. Yep, that was really hard. However, how are we as a nation going to survive with all of these Israelites gone? We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, slave laborers, suddenly gone. The nation of Egypt, I don't know that we can stand without them. And so Pharaoh goes after them. And here's these Israelites marching, fleeing now from Pharaoh. They saw all the signs and wonders that God did. And they're running away. And they go between these mountain passes. And they come up to this huge body of water, the Red Sea. they got a mountain pass on this side, mountains on this side. And behind them, they got Pharaoh's army. And this is where I'm going to pick up the story, and I want you to see what it says here. This is the, the nation. They saw that God has done everything that he said he's going to do, and he's promised to deliver the people. And this is what we find. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they're terrified, and they cry out to the Lord. They said to Moses, I love this. This is, this is comedy, if you've ever seen it in the scriptures. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to, to die? You know, it's, it's obviously there was graves in Egypt. It's like, what? Why have you done this? We would have been better off just staying in Egypt and dying. Just let us die. Let us be. Let us alone. That's what they repeat here. What have you done to bring us out? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So here they are. They're stuck. God said he's going to deliver us, and now look at us. We're stuck. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Have you lost your mind? Do you not see where we're at? Mountain, mountain, sea, and the enemy. Okay? I got nowhere else to go. I'm going to be consumed in a matter of moments. Stand firm. And you, I like this. This is so sweet. Watch these passages. This is incredible. Understand where they've been, what they've encountered, and now what's being said and what they're about to encounter. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to stand still. Talk about a call to trust. Here they are. You got the enemy coming up behind. There's nowhere for them to go. And basically, God says through his servant Moses, like, here's, you have a responsibility. You know what you got to do? Listen up very carefully. Here's the plan. Stay put. What? <laughs> You're just going to let them come on me? No, just trust me. Stand firm. Just watch what I do. Watch me reveal my trustworthiness as you just stand still. It's powerful. But the Israelites, okay, so what ends up happening is Moses raises his staff. Here come the Israelites, or the, the Egyptians behind them, raises his staff. The sea, this great body of water that was before them that was entrapping them in, parts and opens up. And so they cross on dry land. I know some of you may be going like, ah, God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Well, we'll see about that, won't we? 
But the Israelites went through then on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. That day, the Lord, did they save themselves? Absolutely not. The Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And so they walk through on dry ground. After they're through, God says, all right, waters, have at it. And they go, and it destroys the Egyptians' army. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and his servant Moses. After seeing that, wouldn't you think that, wow, if God can do that, I can trust him for anything. I mean, he has demonstrated himself consistent and powerful and good and protective. It's like, wow, that is fabulous. We've perhaps experienced that as well. And yet what oftentimes happens, we encounter a new situation where there's a different army coming behind us and we have a different sea in front of us and we have different mountains to the left and the right. And we go, now what? Now can I trust him anymore? I don't know what to expect with this situation. And that is what I want us to see today. And I think Malachi shows that. The same God who spared the Israelites from Egypt, he delivered them, that same God. He hasn't changed. He's the same God. He's the same today as he was before. And because of that fact he's the same, he is just as trustworthy and consistent now as he ever was. And I think that's what we're going to see this morning as we step in. Interestingly, we look at this. Who is this God? This is mind-blowing when you consider this God. How do you describe him? Well, he described himself briefly to Moses before we even get to that point. And this is what he said. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. This is before they're going to be delivered. All right, This is that Moses has to trust God first and foremost, even before the Israelites will. And so he goes and he's, he's got this burning bush and says, suppose these people ask, who is this God? What is his name that, that sent you? The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, well, what's his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. You know the significance of that phrase? Basically, it means is, you know, there's no words that really describe me, but this is consistent. I am. I am now what I was then. I haven't changed. I am today as I was before. I haven't changed. And that's a powerful reality. There's a significant truth that if we're going to learn to trust God, we have to understand he's not the one changing. I am, maybe my circumstances, but he hasn't. And that is huge. Jesus quoted this very thing. And this is powerful. And I share this because this demonstrates who Jesus is in this realm, in this aspect, because he uses the same phrase. He's encountering with the Pharisees, the rulers, the teachers of the law at this point, And they're saying to him, you're a teacher of the devil. You're from the devil. And Jesus says, you've lost your mind. That's absurd. And he challenges them and basically says, you are not following who you say your father is. You say your God is your father. You say Abraham is your father. If that were the case you would be acting differently. In other words, you don't trust God because of you're doing things on your own. You're trying to appease him with your own self-righteousness. And he ends up saying, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, they ended up challenging him and said, are you saying that, Jesus, are you saying that you are greater than our father Abraham? Because he's like, well, we, we have him pretty lofty. And they're saying, you think you're better than him? Is that really what you're saying? Jesus, in short answer is, yep, look at this. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. This is insane. 
If you ever question the divinity of Jesus Christ, at this point, Jesus Christ is claiming himself to be divine. He is at this point claiming himself to be God. And so, well, that's just, he just happened to use the same words. No, the people that heard this message also understood that Jesus was claiming himself to be God because look at their reaction. If they were just saying, yeah, I exist, they wouldn't care. But they know, these rulers know that Jesus is saying, I am God by this statement, because look at how they react. So they pick up stones and they're ready to stone him because anyone blaspheming in that way, basically the penalty is, is stoning. So these rulers are so angry. It's like, how dare you claim to be God? They're ready to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. And because Jesus is God, we can look at this, and this is going to bring us into the truth, and we're going to step into Malachi here in just a moment. John fourteen six says, Jesus answered them, This is where he says, I'm going away, but you know the way that I'm going. Well, how do we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why is this important? Why is this significant? Because we're looking at what is the truth. And the truth is important. If we're going to be able to trust God, we have to understand what is the truth about him. Who is he? If I'm going to trust him, I have to know him. I have to know that truth. And then he goes on to say, so sanctify them by the truth. Your word is is truth. These are, these are very critical moments as we look at our faith, as we look at the scriptures. What do you believe? Our culture, our society, our world, we're, we're so up on, you know, this, it was a postmodernistic mindset that when I was going to college and I thought that's going to rule. And in some ways it has, but it's so morphed into nobody really cares anymore what the truth is. We have things called fake news. People are making it up. And you have two people calling things, oh, that's, re- that's real, that's real, that's not real, that's not real. Nobody knows anymore what to stand on. Everything is shifting sand. Well, that's okay for you. That's not okay for me. Here's the bottom line, and you don't have to agree with me, and I want to say this gently, but you might not be right then. Not that I'm right. Don't misunderstand me. But what I'm saying is there is truth. You don't have to think there's truth, but that doesn't change the fact that there's truth. You follow? Just because I agree with truth doesn't make it true. Just because I disagree with truth doesn't make it false. Truth exists. It's real. And it's not relative. It's simple as that. There is something that is true. And we can break down different arguments. The point of it is, just because I believe something to be true doesn't make it true. Just because you believe something to be true doesn't make it true. But neither diminishes the reality that there's something that is true. And this is what I am claiming. Let me rephrase that. This is what I see that God is claiming that is true. Okay? There's a difference in that. This is found in the scriptures. And I believe that God is saying, all right, get get this. I will sanctify them by the truth. What is the truth? The truth that we have right now is in the word, the word of God. Jesus Christ is the word. That's our foundation. That's my foundation for understanding what the truth of it is. And so that's what we're going to be pursuing. It's important to understand then as we look at trust, where's our foundation what is it that I can hold on to? That what is it that is stable? So Malachi chapter two. So last verse we ended with sixteen last week. We're stepping into now an invitation to trust is what we're going to find today. You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is spoken through the Lord to, uh, through the servant Malachi, and he says, "You have wearied me." God doesn't get tired. All right, he doesn't get exhausted. 
However, it's like if you've been a parent, especially of multiple children, and you have those multiple children claiming that there's unfairness in the home, you just get flat out tired of listening to the whining and the complaining. So-and-so never does anything. So-and-so never gets in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like, I don't want to hear anymore. I am tired of it. I don't care what you think. You get so fed up with it, right? This is in the same, that picture of what we see here. God is just tired. I'm tired of your whining. You're complaining and you're whining. And I'm just, I'm tired of hearing that. And so he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? Is the Israelites' response. How? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I haven't wearied you. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. And we've looked at that already in some of these passages. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying, this is insane. Look at what's happening here. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and that he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? Here's what's going on in Israel. They're having their own pity party. They're looking at the other nations and they're going like, okay, you say we're your people, but I see you treating them better than you treat us. Why is it that they have the good land and we're stuck here in poverty? Why is it that we are under the oppression of the Persians and they're all living free? Here's the Persians. They're not your people, God, remember? Israel Israel is. And here are the Persians ruling over us. So you must somehow like them better. You know, like Mama did love you best type mentality. And so that's really what's going on with Israel. And they're calling God. It's like, you ha- you're supposed to be the God of justice and you're doing unjust things. They're telling God the way that they see it. The, what he's doing is like, it's like a, a, a child saying to a parent, oh, you're not treating me fairly. Come on. This is absurd. And so that's really what's going on with this picture. And then God's response, this is wonderful. God's response is more than just a here and now answer for them. He's going into the prophetic right now. And so what I love about this is he's got an answer for him. And this answer is in the future. So he says this in verse 1 then of chapter 3. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is a reference to John the Baptist. Okay, who's going to prepare the way for Christ. And then we see the following language right after this. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking. Here's the people. They know the prophecy. They've been, they've read through Isaiah. Isaiah, already, they've already had it. Jeremiah already had those books. Remember, Malachi is the last writing that we have before this silent period. Everything else in the Old Testament already up to this point, they've had. Okay, not quite in the book form that we have, but they've had it. They've been exposed to it. Ezra, Nehemiah, the history books. They know about David. They know about the Pentateuch, the law, all of that aspect. They know about the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. All of those things that have been said, the Israelites have heard. And so here they are at this point. And they know that there's a promise that someday this is going to end. They know that there's a promise that a Savior is coming. And now here we have it in Malachi. This is suddenly the one that you are seeking, the Lord that you are seeking, the one who is going to come and save you. I know you're ready for it. I know you're expecting it. And then he says this. He's going to come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant. This is the one. Oh, he's talking about, he's talking about the Messiah. They would have known this when hearing it. Oh, Malachi is talking about this Messiah. He's going to come and fix everything. The one you desire, he's going to come, says the Lord Almighty. Great! I'm sure they would have heard this point of the message like, yes, that's what we're asking for. We want that Messiah to come because he's the one that's going to bring justice because you're not doing it. And then he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? 
You know, this is that picture. They're, they're calling the wickedness good, and, the, and they're saying, God, why are you favoring the wicked? Why are the unjust doing such, being blessed so? And God says to them, says, but when this Messiah comes, who can endure it? He says, who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In other words, he's saying, this injustice that you think you see, when this Messiah comes, nobody's going to stand. And that includes you Israelites. Romans 14 gives us a picture. This is New Testament now. Paul talks about this idea of standing before the Messiah. Okay? The Israelites would have thought, hey, we need that Messiah to come. We'll stand with them. And really what Malachi is saying is, Messiah is going to come and nobody's standing with them because everyone is going to be exposed for their own sin and unrighteousness and no one has the power to stand. And then Paul puts it in this realm. You who are to judge someone else's servant, to their own master servant stand or fall, okay? So you guys think, here you are, there's only one judge. You can't judge, hey, I'll be able to stand. Nope, you're not going to be able to stand. I saw the sin in your life. Oh, yeah, you might be okay. And so we make these judgments. And the reality is no one has the authority to stand. When the Messiah comes, we'll all be flat on our faces. And then he puts on this tag, he says, and they will stand. Wait, what is this? For the Lord is able to make them stand. This is incredible. Please just understand this. Here we have the Israelites. They're just as steeped in sin as the wicked they're claiming that God doesn't uh, show his wrath for. They're in the same boat. They're going to be in the same position, flat on their faces. And basically what he's saying is, you can't stand on your own. You have no righteousness to build yourself up in a stand. It will be me who will cause you to stand. It is by my righteousness and my power that you will have that ability to stand. But guess what? When you trust me, I will make you stand. You have no power, no strength on your own. I will make you stand. This is an incredible picture. Okay, verse 3. So we have this refiner, and we have this purifier, this laundry soap. And the, the wonderful thing about refining, if you've ever done it, the only thing I've done is, is lead, like making some lead bullets and such, where you get this melting pot and you put your lead in there. But it's always contaminated. There's always other stuff in there. And so if you watch the metals burn, they burn down and there ends up being this other stuff that ends up rising to the surface. That's the contaminants. And so it, it purifies it. It separates. So the refiner's fire does two things. One is it separates out that which is pure from that which doesn't belong. And so here comes this Messiah, and he's going to refine you. He's going to, in other words, expose that which does not belong. And then it also consumes and burns up that slag, the rest of that stuff that doesn't, doesn't belong. He's going to get rid of it. So that's what the refiner's fire does. It's both of those. And they use this phrase of, of the launder's soap. It's, it's this picture of I, this Messiah is the one that's going to come, and God says, I'm going to make you clean. We don't refine ourselves. We don't clean ourselves. That's God's work that he is doing in us. He's doing that sanctifying work. He is the one that is refining us. He is the one that is purifying us. And so then he points to what we talked about last week with the Levites. He wants to restore these priests who have gone astray. They've become complacent. It's like, I want you back not because you have a righteousness, but because I will make you righteous by my blood. And I'm going to do that so that you can then be the testimony to the nations. He will purify the Levites and refine them like the gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. I love this because we talked about last week. They were doing offerings that were sinful. They were, they were basically giving God the leftovers. 
It's like, here, I have, I have this chicken. I saw Francis Chan do this one time. I have this chicken leg. You know, it's like, oh, God, I'll give you everything. But then we end up eating the chicken leg because, oh, I want to keep it for myself. We end up throwing him the bone is the idea. It's giving God that which is left, and God wants the first. Why? Because it's like, oh, I'm so demanding? No, because he's worth diamonds and not cubic zirconium. Then the Lord will have men because when he does the purifying work, when he does the righteous work in us, now our hearts are aligned with his. And as I bring these offerings, if the priest would have brought offerings with that right heart, it would have been totally different. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem, he is the one that does the work to bring those offerings and they are acceptable because of his work. And Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the day, days gone by as in the former years. And that's what he wants to restore. Okay. Verse 5, so I will come and I'm going to put you on trial so I will be quick to testify against the... And now he's going to give a list of sins. These Israelites, at the point of this, they're just as guilty. And then I want you to really see verse 6. So these are what the, the Israelites are saying. Hey, these are the evil people. God's basically saying, yeah, and so are you. All right, this is the lump piece of it. So I will come to put you, you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of, for, of their wages who oppress the widow and the fathers and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And then there it is, verse 6. This is our theme verse for the day. Oh, so he says this. You call me wicked. That's what he's saying to the, the Israelites are calling him wicked. You call me wicked. You call me unjust. As if you even know. You're so clueless on your own need for sanctification. You, you're missing it. I am providing it. It is my righteousness. You haven't earned it yourself. I want to give you my righteousness, but you're so stuck in trying to earn it yourself. And then he goes on, he says, I'm going to put you on, on trial. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. This is a message saying to these Israelites, it's like, remember? Remember what I did with your ancestors coming out of Egypt? I haven't changed. I still have that power. I still have that authority. And I want to use it. I want, I want to transform you. I want your hearts. I want to draw you in. I haven't changed. Sometimes we look at, at God and we maybe remember him from our childhood. Maybe we remember him from certain circumstances. Like, I feel like, is God doing the same things he used to do? And I'm not talking about those major miracles of parting the Red Sea. I'm talking about, is this God still the same God? Is he still a God of justice? Is he still this God of righteousness? And the answer is yes, he hasn't changed. I've changed. I have, I have evidence of my change. Look at this. I know, it's me. It's like, what happened? You used to be so cute. Yeah, that's what my mom says. That's me, you know. Some things change, some things don't change, all right? I, I've, ever since I was a young ch- kid, uh, I love fishing. And so I also don't swim well. So you have the fish and you have the life jacket. And here I am still, okay? I love fishing and I still don't swim well, Okay. I've changed. I look nothing like it. Now, notice I have a hat on. There's a reason I have a hat on. You guys see it now because I have no hair. Okay? And my, my head burns easily. But we change. And this picture, it's, it's old. This has the whole family in it. You can see them. It's like, wow, they look really good. And they still look good, but they've changed. Oh, isn't that incredible? It's change. We live in a world of change. But God doesn't change. You know, my life circumstances, how I view the world now is way different than how I viewed the world then. Did the world change? Yeah. Did I change? Absolutely. Did God change? No. 
He loves just as much today as he always has. He treats sin the same way today as he always has. And that's one we don't necessarily, we'd like God to change that, okay? He still views sin just as bad as he always has. Did he change when he sent Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. This was part of his plan from the beginning. Why? Because he loves us deep enough because he had that in mind from the very beginning. When he's looking at these Israelites and he's correcting them even in this passage, he uses this picture of I'm sending you a Messiah. You can't stand in front of that Messiah, but guess what? It is sweet and it is good and you guys are blind to it. And when you come to see and to taste and to know that the Lord is good, oh, please understand that I've always been good, even when you don't see it. But things change. You know, it's, it, the best I can do in, in this world, we have rocks, okay? But even, I know, right? But even rocks change. I've, I, I haven't watched. I've seen the evidence of sculptures. They'll take stone and they carve it into other things. The rocks change. Well, they were influenced. But I know, but they change. Can you do anything to change God? No. Can you make and mold God into something he's not? No. He won't change. He is the same. And I'm thankful that he is the same because what that means is he's always been the God of grace, not just New Testament. He's always been the God of mercy, not just New Testament. He's always been the God of redeeming his people, not just the New Testament. That's the heart of God. That's what he is. That's who he is. And then he goes on and he says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. For some of us, we want to trust, but we feel like I'm stuck. I'm facing this Red Sea. I've got mountains on both sides. My enemies behind. Where's God? For some of us, maybe we feel like we're hanging on a branch. The tiger's ready to swipe down on us, and we got little chipmunks nibbling away at the branch. Where's God? I don't know what you're facing. And this isn't just lip service, but God has demonstrated himself faithful. He's demonstrated himself trustworthy. And what's he calling us to do? Come back. Trust me again. I haven't changed. I'm still a firm foundation. For some of you, maybe you've never felt like you could put your trust in him. And this is a brand new concept. It's like, I don't think I can trust him. How has he shown himself trustworthy? In the truth of the word, we find Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has to offer by giving his blood for our sins so that we can be saved by our faith and trust in him. Not anything that we've done. I, you have two choices. Trust God that he's brought salvation or trust myself that I can earn it. I know myself. That's not working. It never has, never will. All it's, it's like me having a shovel and I just keep digging a deeper hole trying to get higher up. I keep going the wrong way. And this is the call. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how do we return? In other words, the, the Israelites are saying, we've always been there. How, what do you mean return? We haven't gone anywhere. Yeah, you have. And he uses this example. And we'll just touch on this briefly and we'll wrap it up. He says, God is a God of justice. Let's go back. God is a God of justice. He's also God of faithfulness. And what was happening with the Israelites is they wouldn't trust him, not only with his expressions of justice, but also in his faithfulness. They didn't trust that God was going to provide for them. Maybe you're in a position with that today. And it's like, I am so scared of God not providing for me. 
I'm, I'm scared of trusting him with my finances. I'm scared of trusting him with my children. I'm scared of trusting him in all aspects of my life. Maybe that's where God's calling you to return to him today. But this is what he points out to them. He says, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? And they ask, what do you mean? How are we robbing you? And he says, in your tithes and your offerings. I know money's a, a difficult thing, but it does, you know, it's to talk about, but it's, a, it's an important aspect to understand. Where your heart is towards your finances does reveal who God is in your life. If you trust him you and you are generous with what it is that he has given to you. And I affirm again, this, this local body is a very generous body. Thank you for that. But this, I'm just pointing out the scriptures here. If I withhold my finances because I'm afraid, what am I going to do if I run out of money? What am I going to do if God doesn't provide, if I don't trust him with that? God's saying, trust me. Oh, he gives a beautiful picture with it. So that's really what's happening here is when he calls them of robbing him. And he's challenging and says, bring it. Trust me in this. I have heard stories of some people, and this is their experience that they've shared with me. They felt the Lord was saying, hey, trust me with your money. And they've made the decision. I've, several have shared it with me. We made the decision to start tithing. A tithe is a, is a tenth, and it's the first tenth. It's, and why does that matter? Because it's like the chicken bone. All right, I'm going to give you a tenth first and foremost. Well, oh, oh, bummer! I I ate the tenth. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now all I got left is the bone. When we give the first tenth, it shows like, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you for the rest. When I give him the last tenth, it's like well, I'll give you the tenth as long as it's left over at the end. You follow? And it's like giving God leftovers. He's worth the diamonds, not the cubic zirconium. And so hear the heart behind it. And that's what God's after. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. And the, some phrases may say, trust me in this, in some of your versions. Says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This is not a promise saying, okay, if you give a tenth, God's going to give you overabundant wealth. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying if you trust him and you give to him as he's asking and inviting you to live, if you're, if you're trusting him like he's inviting you to trust, just watch and see what kind of blessings he'll pour out. It may not be financial. I'm not promising that. But it's good because he is trustworthy. Everything that he has done has been consistent because he is more trustworthy than the sturdiness of the stone. An example, remember the, the I-35 bridge? Yeah, the 35W bridge, whatever it was, you know, that, that collapsed virtually made out of stone and steel. It's trustworthy. And then the whole bridge collapses. God's way more trustworthy than anything that we face, anything that even seems so sturdy in this world. God is more solid than that. He's unchanging. Test me in this and see what I will do. And then he goes on, he says, I will defend your provisions. He says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields that will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Two verses and I want to wrap it up. Okay. 
Stop trusting in mere humans. Isaiah says this, stop trusting in mere humans. And that, that includes anything we find in this world. It's easy to find trust in certain ways. We want to trust, but we find it difficult to trust, whether it's politics, whether it's finances, whether it's even other people that are close friends around us. And he says, stop trusting in mere humans. He doesn't say stop trusting people, but stop putting your trust in just humanistic things who have but a breath in their nostrils. Okay, everyone that you trust, I hope that you have a lot of people that you trust, but keep in mind, they're human. Okay? They're not unchangeable like God is. That's a huge difference. Why do you hold them in such esteem? And then 1 John 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus' words to us, and we will end with this. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm... I would have told you that I'm going to there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. God has a plan for you. He loves you. We looked at that last week. He desperately thinks you're absolutely amazing. So much so that he wants to have a place for you. But he wants you to trust him in this. He wants you to trust you. He wants you to trust him with all that you have in this life. It's a call to return. So I'm going to invite uh, the worship team to come up. We're going to take some time to reflect as we worship in these last two songs. Is there areas of your life that you need to let go? Is there areas that you, you hold on to this branch and you see no hope and you hear God saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. And maybe it's finances. Maybe it's with relationships with family members. Maybe it's relationships with others. Maybe it's a workplace situation. I don't know where you're at. But trust is a huge challenge for every human being. And it's likely that we all have something that the Lord's saying, trust me in this. It'll be okay. Trust me. So take some time to worship, to praise, as well as to pray, Lord, what is it that you're calling me to trust you in?